to the Bible and the English major. I'm Marin, your host. In each episode of this podcast, we're going to analyze stories from scripture the way an English major would, unpacking the parts to gain a better understanding of the whole. I'll keep it interesting because I'd love to start a conversation. After all, the best part of any good story is talking about it with friends. to see an article version of this and future podcasts, you can go to my website at marinjo.com. There, you'll find citations to the work I reference, as well as links to other interesting articles on the topic. Previously on Season 2 of The Bible and the English Major, The Covenantal Parent God and a Bridegroom Savior Jesus are both present in the story of the Samaritan woman at the well, found in John chapter 4. Today, we'll see evidence of the Holy Spirit, who is the third part of the Trinity. Trinity means the trio of people who make up the one Christian God, traditionally named the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I know that's a confusing idea, and I'm not even going to try to explain it. I'm just going to be the English major who says, how cool is this? That John sneaks all three parts of God's identity into 40 verses while simultaneously telling a story that's pretty dang good all by itself. Buckle up, buttercup. We're looking at a passage from Ezekiel today, an ancient book of prophecy. Ezekiel is one of the stranger books in the Bible, so this should be fun. I'm going to summarize chapter 47, verses 1 through 13 in just a minute. But if you'd like to read those verses on your own, go for it. I'll be waiting for you when you get back. Here comes the Bible story speed run. All right, Ezekiel 47, 1 through 13 on my mark. Get set. Go. Ezekiel is having a vision. He sees himself uh, planted on a mountaintop, and from there he gets a tour of the renewed temple. He's at the temple entrance, and he is shown that there's water flowing out in all directions by this, like, angel tour guide guy. And the angel tour guide guy says, hey, let's go for a walk down the water. And so at first, Ezekiel notices, okay, the water's up to my ankle. Then tour guide guy measures out a thousand cubits. Ooh, it's up to his knees. Thousand more cubits. Ooh, it's up to his waist. A thousand more cubits. Oh, heck, I got to get out of this water. I can't swim. So out they go. And Ezekiel notices there are trees on both sides and they are beautiful and healthy trees. And then tour guide says, hey, this water flows to the sea and that salty water there becomes fresh. All kinds of animals live and there are fish of all kinds. People go fishing and there are more and more trees that bear fruit in all seasons and their leaves never wither. This is a gusher. Woo! Hey, about as close to one minute exactly as I can get. And yay me, because prophecy is weird. Here's what you need to know. This is the part where I explain some context. Genre alert! This is prophecy! Prophecy is a message received directly from God through dreams, visions, moments of ecstasy, or hearing a voice. 
Prophets who had these encounters then had the role of sharing the message with God's people. Not always a fun job. The message Ezekiel has been tasked with regards issues like God's apparent abandonment and the Israelites' loss of their homeland during the Babylonian exile. The first 24 chapters of Ezekiel contain prophecies of the impending fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, the dwelling place of God. The section we're looking at today is Ezekiel's ultimate message of hope after these devastating events have occurred. Ezekiel has a vision of being placed on a mountaintop. From that view, an angelic being who affectionately calls him mortal gives him an eight-chapter tour of the restored temple and surrounding land, pointing out all its best features. These verses probably feel like a huge detour from the Samaritan woman at the well. We are in a very different genre and a very different time period. But prophecies like this one were both familiar and relevant to the gospel writers. As Joel B. Green and editors point out, they were, quote, to be understood as having abiding significance and were to be applied to contemporary events, end quote. One of the most prominent features of Ezekiel's prophecy is its striking imagery. That's English major speak for vivid description that appeals to the reader's senses. Ezekiel is working hard to describe a place only he can see, so he uses imagery to paint a mental picture for us. Interestingly, John uses the two most prominent of Ezekiel's images in the story of the woman at the well, water and the temple. As we unpack these common images, we'll see how John uses them to reveal the presence of the Holy Spirit. Warning. I have tried to hammer this episode into a linear formation, as modern, western thinker types like to do. But it won't go. Prophecy isn't linear. I don't think the Holy Spirit is, either. My suggestion is to let the imagery wash over you and see how it all comes together. The first image we need to notice is the temple, a pervasive theme throughout much of the Hebrew Bible as well as John's gospel. It was central to God's people as the place where they experienced God's presence, where they worshiped, and where they made sacrificial offerings. At its best, the temple was a holy place. Through the prophets, God continually expresses a desire to dwell with the people. But God doesn't always seem like a big fan of the temple itself. When King David first offers to build God a temple in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God's response is basically, Nah, I'll build something for you instead. In Ezekiel 10, God flat out leaves the temple because the people are worshiping false gods there. The prophet Jeremiah helps us understand another angle of God's perspective in Jeremiah chapter 7, 4. Through Jeremiah, God says, quote, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, end quote. In other words, God is saying, don't keep reassuring yourself with the temple if you're pulling all kinds of bad behavior. Show me your hearts belong to me by doing justice and following only me. Part of God's resistance to a temple seems to be that it gives God's people false security. God doesn't want them thinking they can show up on the holy days and do the holy things. 
but that their hearts can be far from God and that they can behave however they want. God is interested in a covenantal, mutual belonging relationship with the people. When people turn away, God turns away too, but always with a reunification plan in mind. Water is also a central part of this prophecy, and guess what? It's a theme in John's Gospel, too. In antiquity, all life in Israel depended on sporadic, seasonal rainfall. Drought was a constant threat, so water was treasured. Its value added meaning to important expressions of hospitality like foot washing and to its symbolic use in ritual hand washing, bathing, and baptism. Because it was rare, essential, and required work to obtain, its worth is hard to understand for those of us who simply turn on the faucet. Green and fellow editors say that in the scriptures, quote, water symbolized life, cleansing, refreshment, and renewal, end quote. Because of these characteristics, water was also a perfect symbol for the Holy Spirit, which is why the Spirit is described as being poured out and filling believers. John knows this symbol well and uses it 21 times in his gospel, while the three other gospel writers use it only a combined 18 times. Nine of John's uses occur in the story of the woman at the well, so it's good we're noticing it. Let's get on with the show, the part where we really dive into the story. Let's take a closer look at this prophecy. In Ezekiel 47.1, the vision tour continues at the temple entrance, where Ezekiel notices water flowing out in multiple directions. Its single source is the temple, the dwelling place of God. As Ezekiel and his angelic tour guide journey through the water, Ezekiel sees that it's rising. It goes from ankle deep to uncrossable in less than a mile and a half. Even the tour guide is impressed, turning to Ezekiel saying, Mortal, have you seen this? In verse 6. I'm sure he has that accent. Tour guide Angel tells Ezekiel that the waters flow to the sea, where stagnant waters become fresh, swarming creatures live, and all kinds of fish become abundant. We need to understand that tour guide Angel isn't talking about any old sea. He's referring to the Dead Sea, which is almost 1,000 feet deep and is 9.6 times saltier than the ocean. It's a great place to float, but you wouldn't want to live there. Nothing does, hence the name. But there's so much life flowing in the river Ezekiel sees that, quote, everything will live where the river goes, end quote. Even in this deadest of seas, that's verse 10. Ordinary water doesn't do that. We've got a supernatural gusher here. The water transforms more than just the sea. In verse 12, we hear that trees grow on the banks, fruit-bearing trees that never cease to bear fruit with leaves that never wither. Just look what water flowing from Ezekiel's renewed temple can do. So does this beautiful prophecy ever come to fruition? No, but it wasn't intended to. The Oxford Bible Commentary explains, quote, This section of Ezekiel does not prophesy a literal 
future for the temple. Rather, it offers a temple plan as an embodiment of the community's values. Though it has never actually been built, Ezekiel's literary temple has proved more enduring than physical temples. End quote. Isn't that cool? An enduring literary temple embodying the life-giving values of God and God's people. It's not the only one. There are many passages about living water flowing from the temple, though it seems such a literal building has never been built. Let's return to where this series began. The Samaritan woman goes to the well every day to get water for her household. Jesus offers her living water, the life-giving Holy Spirit water that flows from the temple. How do we know the water he offers is the Holy Spirit? First, he promises her she'll never be thirsty again, but that water will gush up inside her too, all the way to eternal life. Ordinary water doesn't do that. We've got a supernatural gusher here, people. We also know because John just tells us in chapter 7, verse 38. Jesus says, Out of the believer's heart shall flow rivers of living water. And then John explains in verse 39, Now he said this about the Spirit, which believers in him were to receive. Sometimes it's that easy. Thanks for the help, John. What did Jesus and the woman start chatting about next? Not coincidentally, they move on to a conversation about the temple. The Jews and Samaritans had different ideas about where the house of God should be. After the woman begins to get a glimmer of who she's talking to, she asks which temple is the right one. Jesus' answer is surprising. Neither. Ooh, if the temple authorities could see him now. This is not a good Jewish rabbi's answer. What's up? Like the covenantal parent God who speaks through the prophets, Jesus wants the temple to be a true place of worship, a place where God dwells. He wants this so vehemently, in fact, that in John chapter 2, he braids a whip and clears the temple of the loan sharks. He flips tables, dumps their prophets, scattering sheep, cattle, and coins everywhere. This, my friends, is some righteous anger. Jesus is a one-man riot. When the temple authorities ask, who the beep do you think you are? Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. <sighs> Fighting words. John softens things in verse 21 by explaining Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body being raised three days after his death. But that's not the whole story. He is also critiquing the temple and proclaiming a shift in the way Israel experiences God's presence. The temple building will again be torn down, but Jesus now replaces that temple as the dwelling place of God. John is continuing his rhetorical pattern of replacing facets of Judaism with Jesus. He doesn't stop there, though. When the living water gushes up to eternal life in the Samaritan woman— she also becomes God's dwelling place, the temple of the Holy Spirit. No longer do God's people need to go to a temple to be in God's presence. God has come to dwell in their very bodies, even the body of a Samaritan woman. In the spirit of prophecy, 
let's come to an image. Imagine a loving God whose very being overflows with life-giving water. The water gushes up inside those who ask for it and flows out of them, too, bringing life wherever they go. It is good water that revives the dead places within us and in the world. It stares down death and says, you have no power here. The life and love of God flows to all people and honors all humanity. The life and love of God wants our full, honest selves and is less condemning of our dark places than we are. The life and love of God is unsurprised by failure and responds every time with grace. The Holy Spirit that gushes through God's people brings life so strong it causes what is dead to live. If it's not life, if it's not love, there's a very good chance it's not God. wrap up this series with a guest. Pastor and spiritual director Dana Lee Oman Simon is going to sit down with me to discuss this series. And so I'm very excited to hear her perspective on these stories and more. Until then, thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that follow button and share it with some friends. Find me on social media and keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you too. little shout out to John Knight for being my first Patreon patron. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and see you next time. Bye-bye.